0: Welcome to Start by Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our western Kentucky communities.
1: Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm
0: and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand.
1: We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Welcome back to Start by Listening. This is part of a podcast that we started a few weeks ago, uh, Raising Sexual Offenders. I think that was the name of it, y'all. Honestly, I don't remember. I'm authentic. I don't know if I took my medicine today. It is 2022. Oh, well. Hey, everybody. It's Jennifer, aka The Friendly Therapist, here with my PIC and co-pilot, Shelby. Hey, everybody. Welcome back and we have some lovely people here with us again today. We have Miss Becky Robey, Miss Crystal Newton, and Miss Targan, our experts here at New Beginnings on all things sexual offending and sexual offenders due to where they used to work before they came to New Beginnings. And so we asked them to join us again for part 2 because part 1 was just too damn short. And we have lots of interesting things to cover. I guess for a recap, and I'm going to ask anybody to chime in and help me, but kind of where we left off with part one was we were kind of talking about um, along the lines of having unrestricted access to the internet, to social media, opens this opportunity to be exposed to Pornography and really adult content that children have access to now, which creates this dynamic and this opportunity for kind of the, I guess the the pathophysiology to develop of offending and um, uh, what's the word I'm for? Pushing boundaries, manipulation, aka grooming, which we talked about. Gosh. Wasn't that like season two, Becky, that you and I talked about manipulation and grooming? and So, yeah, so that's kind of where we are. And I'm so glad we're all back. So I don't know where you guys
2: want to go today on this journey. What are you thinking? I think that was an excellent recap. And
0: Becky, you're about to hop in. I was going to ask you, honestly, what do we do about it? How do we stop it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, when Jennifer is doing the recap, I'm I'm just thinking things in my head like lack of supervision. Um, one of the big things, too, from the last podcast that hits home internally, what I'm thinking about it is the reactions in the body to stimuli that's produced at a younger age, sexual stimuli, and that person, like that kid's response to it. So we talked about um, like a kid who had pants was being pantsed. Was that Tara? The example that we gave, I think you were in That's that Um, And it, there was the giggling and then it kept happening and then it became for attention. And then this particular offender kind of talked about what that feeling meant to him and then how it escalated to sexual with his um, pushing the boundaries. Like this time I'm going to show my front privates instead of mooning that person. And then, um, the responses that I got and the excitement that came with that, which, um, squirrel, it makes me think about Atlas of the Heart. Jennifer, do you remember when Brene was talking about how our body reacts to excitement and anxiety and fear? And so it all depends on the person. And I think, Crystal, we talked about this student supervision. Um, it talks about the person's disposition. So how we can think of like, like my kid went to um, a fire department today and toured it and how he was excited. And we talked about body sensations and another kiddo could be anxious, even though they they are uncertain that the feelings are so closely related. It has to do with how you internally, that feeling lands on you, disposition of family, reactions, feelings, identifications. That's crazy. It's yes. always about a kid mooning and exposing themselves, and then maybe it was oh, a little bit of like um, anxiety, or people can accept me. They'll, they think this is funny. Oh, this is excitement, and then it can transition to other feelings. Sorry, just just gonna go off on a tangent of random things and pile them together in this. Um, I love it, little ball, it- sexual offending.
1: I love it, and it's true because uh, within the nervous system, excitement, fear, and anxiety—they all create the almost the exact same physical sensations within the body. And so then it's kind of like, well, what's the context of the situation to help us figure out, you know? Um, because like I love to talk in front of people. I love—I did theater in high school. I love doing trainings, and it's exciting to me. And it's also a little nervous at the same time, a little bit of anxiety because it's like, oh, who are these people going to be? Are they going to receive what I'm giving? Um, So sometimes it's both and it's being able to have that context. But when we're kids, right, we don't always have words to put context to a situation.
3: Or or information. So... um I'm not going to, this is not a client that I'm going to talk about. It's actually a somebody who's not a fender, but um, talking to another person about their sexuality and how when they were younger, they had no idea what to be attracted to as far as a woman. And so they had a poster of Kathy Ireland and they would look at it and get sexually aroused by the armpits because most women's armpits are covered. A lot of times. And this person had no idea what to focus on because they did. They were so young um, that they had no idea what to even what was under the bathing suit. Right. Um, the bottom part anyway. So I, I would imagine that's kind of where fetishes start in and young kids, um, and it it was blew my mind away because I'd never heard of anybody talk about their sexuality that way. and remembering when they were a kid and what happened. and um, this person had a little, had some sexual abuse. But, um, if you don't know, you don't know. And so, uh, you don't there's all kinds of things that could get mixed up in your head as far as sexuality and excitement and what you get turned on by and what, get you off for a better word. But um, yeah, it's there's no telling what's in people's minds before they even know anything as kids.
0: So it's really interesting you bring up armpits because I just saw on TikTok that there has been a crabs outbreak at Brigham Young University. um, And that crabs outbreak is happening in armpits um, because that is what those students are doing to get around the loophole of not being allowed to have premarital sex. Uh, I saw it on TikTok. So give it what it's worth. Is it real or not? But yeah, no, I just saw that. So the armpit thing is interesting. Um,
2: <laughs> but Getting the, around
0: what loophole? Of they're premarital. not allowed to have premarital sex. So have you heard about soaking where they just kind of like lay there and then someone will shake the bed because they're not allowed to do any thrusting motions. But if it's just sitting there, it's not technically premarital sex. So it's okay in the eyes of they don't worship a God in Mormonism or do they have a specific God? It's like a branch of Christianity. I don't know, but that's their loophole to get out of premarital sex. And now there is a crabs outbreak in the armpits of students there because they're doing something, they're doing
2: something with the armpits. Am I hearing you saying that? Yes, you are. Whatever orifice, whatever partner there, there is insertion of private parts if applicable and then someone is causing the gyration and, and movement to happen that's what's soaking
0: yes there's an entire yes interesting yes is that
1: considered a threesome
3: <laughs> no probably not with them i would imagine no. i'm
1: just asking because you have to have I'm somebody kind
4: of the, the think of the same thing like what is the, yeah. the bystander i guess so-called bystander
1: I think technically you
0: could say that, but I don't think that that's what they would call it within.
3: But the restrictions, Mm -hmm. it just shows you that the restrictions cause, I'm not gonna say this deviant sex because I don't think it's deviant, but it is still sex, but they're able to do some kind
4: of mind gymnastics uh with i'm almost like the- like think outside the box like how can i do like think outside the box you well, to, to build me. this sensation yeah how can i get what me. i
2: want without breaking the law how can i get with what i want without breaking the ethics and the moral police
3: which shows that sex is just part of being a human being and when you're restricted it makes you want it even more Almost. I mean, especially kids, teenagers. Um well,
1: that's taboo. It's it's anything, yeah. right? Like, if yeah. your friends are all on YouTube and you're the one student whose parents are like lockdown central and like, no, you can't be on YouTube. Or if you are, I'm the one who's controlling. What are you going to do? You you want to know. What, and what they're am not I telling missing? You. What am I missing? Yeah, and
3: they're not telling they're not educating
1: me. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where
0: things get dangerous. And then you start building those weird neural pathways into the deviant behaviors. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Crystal, because that reminds me during the last episode, I did bring up where does the deviation between like kink and horrible, horrible things happen? Like, obviously, it's with a consensual partner. And there's people who are in the BDSM community who have very clear, strict guidelines but there are some really deeply some may view as disturbing fetishes out there. So obviously you need the consensual partner but like at what point is that deviant behavior like deviant in a destructive way? Does that make sense? I mean I I I know where I'm going but I want to hear your input and into that kind of realm of growing up and how
3: those pathways are built. Well, here's the thing, kids are starting out with kink fright right off. I mean, it's it, they know about all this stuff and they it's not like, oh, I'm a, I, I'm 48 years old or no, I'm 40 years old and I'm divorced and I'm learning about all this stuff. That's not a story. But <laughs> it's not it's a personal story. But yeah, I it's it's so accessible that um they are starting with kink, like little um, daddy, daddy, little girl relationships. Um, I had I had a client that was involved in a, I got what she called it, but it wasn't daddy little girl, but it was sub dom relationship. Like kids are doing those things today. Um,
1: oh, yeah. I had a fifth grader explain to me what furry is.
2: Mm hmm
1: and i'm I i'm sitting see. there going like this and i thought i need to look that up cuz i really don't think if i know
0: i actually yeah. had a child recently tell me that their sister was going as a furry for halloween and i was like uh, do, you, do you do you know what that is i mean i didn't i i asked her uh, like what what kind of animal was she going as because i don't know if this child understood actually what a furry was but i don't I don't know. I don't know. I think
2: I think furries can be sexual. Go
3: ahead, Crystal. I think, sorry. I think furries can be sexual and non sexual. Really? But yeah. And I, I, I think it there's was like a strictly kink thing. Yeah. No. But it it's like bronies. That wasn't a sexual thing either until adults started getting involved. Um and I think that furries can also be non sexual. Um Because I think it's just people relating to an animal or the anamorph that that we see so much. And then if you go back to childhood and the TV shows you watched and you got attracted by Lola Bunny, you were attracted to her. This is also part of the fetish and the kink, too, I think, is uh, becoming attractive. Like this person I was talking about became attracted to armpits. Because those are or like places where aren't seen with the clothes, like maybe your belly or you know, um, and then these kids get infatuated with anamorphic um characters
4: sexually attracted to them
2: and then are identifying as animals at school and requesting.
4: And I think that's where
2: that is not uh, true,
0: Becky. Don't bring up the litter box thing. That is well, fake and I'm news, right wing so,
2: propaganda. Yeah, I think I'm some joking. of them I'm not actually true. internally giggling because I know that yeah. that's not true. Yeah, okay, yeah <laughs> can you just sprinkle it in? But they do. They think, do like
3: to things. Like, yeah. yeah.
4: But I also think that's where, like, the younger generation, like I said here, and think this is what we do every single day and the lack of education or the new stuff that comes out that I'm unaware of. So then I think of like older generations, like people who are even older than me and you have these kids who don't really, they're saying these things, but they're not going to go to their parents because their parents are old and don't understand. And then where do the parents get the information? And then it's like, I have these questions or these things. And so I deal with it on my own and how easy does it cross to then it's unsafe. So how do I channel this new thing? How do I channel it in a safe way? Like we, we talk about consent, like, of course you have to have a consensual partner, but also how do I channel it as that individual in a safe, productive, healthy way You know, especially when we talk about masturbation, of course, we tell people, like, as long as you're in a safe place, you're in private, you're in a bathroom, you're in your bedroom, nobody's going to walk in. But how do they then take these things like we're talking about and channel it in a safe, healthy way when you can't really disguise some of this stuff like you can masturbation, so to speak? You know, if you're dressing this way or if you have this fetish or you have this, you can't really disguise it in that way. And then who do you talk to?
0: That's a great question. I think that's the question I was trying to ask. You worded that very, very well.
3: Well, and we have children and everything dealing with candy. We sexualize candies for sexualized cartoons. Like Little Bunny, What well, you know, do bunnies have boobs? I mean, no. Um,
4: so I think that's part of it too. Just everything's sexualized. And then perpetrators don't want to go talk about it because then what? They get in trouble. They get you know, you're weird, you're a weirdo, get away from me. So what happens to their behaviors? They don't go away. They just increase or.
1: Which when you said that, like, I understand that the topic of this is like, you know, raising sexual offenders, but I can't help, but just have this parallel correlation, sexual offending and the serial killers who sexually offend as well. Right. Like what kind of environment, what kind of lack of needs being met? Because
3: what kind know, of brain structure when you're yes. born. I, I mean, mean, to me, I've
4: always felt like it's more about brain structure. Like this is just something we are sexual people. I don't, we're humans. We're sexual. We're sexual people. And you can't help who you're attracted to. Like this is the gender. This is what this is what turns me on. Like sometimes that's just who makes you that person. And I you think you can't help who you're attracted to. Well, you know what I mean. Like
2: conditioned. Like Crystal's talking about even when we're talking about furries, there's there can definitely be conditioning. Yeah, 100 you're attracted to. You
4: you can be, but I think like for some offenders, like this is they're just attracted to kids. You know what I mean? Like they for are
3: sex. Yeah. And yeah, people you can control and manipulate. Like, you went six that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep.
2: So when you think about all these things, and Shelby, you brought up like, where's the line? There's so many variables because when you think about sub and DOMs, my brain goes to, or individuals who um, like NAMBLA. When we talk about the science behind it and the behavioral reasons behind it in terms of like um, emotional maturity, afraid of rejection, wanting to be told what to do uh, because there are a fear of making mistakes. Um, there's so,
3: uh, a rape. What is S- it? Consensual rape scenes.
2: Mm-hmm. Talking about being raised and what you're provided, what you weren't provided emotionally, how you feel that need and void um, oh, I mean, I, I could be one hundred percent wrong, but I'm gonna dare to say a more more percentage than not of the sexual kinks are not healthy
3: i'm a I'm a disagree.
2: No, okay. Well, I'm in mean in terms of, is it a healthy person with another right. person right. who knows their boundaries, yes. who aren't involving yes. other people? There yes. is absolute present and mindfulness in the moment. There is no regrets. There is no flashbacks related to it. It doesn't cause any issues in any other my relationships.
3: Well, there's like, not a lot of things that don't do that. I mean, I, I think if you, it is a very dangerous place to be because just like manipulative people become therapists uh, or manipulative people become cops or whatever in every field you are you have dangerous people in the kink in area world that are only after their own needs so yeah I, but i think when it's <sighs> There's a commu- There are communities in certain places that have sex clubs in their communities. These communities are ran very safe. They're ran very consensual. They have classes um, and people get kicked out if they do not behave well. So those places, yes. On the Internet and just meeting at the bar type things, no. Um, but I think it can happen.
2: But even in these sex clubs, it's not like they do this full assessment of, tell me about your history of trauma. Um, do you feel like you can say no verbally? Do you need a passcode? Can we use an object instead? Like, do you think yeah. that this full psychological investment?
3: No, I don't know about that, but they do do educational courses about it. And I mean, at the end of the day, you're an adult and you're here and you've got to, you know, this is the facilities that you use. And I mean, they're not responsible for your mental health, but I do think they take care of They care about mental health. Um, That's not not everywhere. That's right. That's places I've been myself to observe.
4: Like I'm sitting here thinking like when you talk about like preconditioned or you were your brain development and different things like that. Like, do you guys and I mean, this is an honest question. Like, do you guys think that you can prevent somebody becoming a sex offender? Do you think a parent, do you think, how do you oh, prevent no. that? Or do you think that education,
1: education? But if there's brain structure, like, you know, they've been able to determine if somebody has the ability to become a psychopath based on brain scans, because and those, those brain scans look a certain way. So that's a yeah. brain
2: Structure, right? So, I don't know. I mean, ADGs and
4: uh, because and then like it to prevent it because your personality is formed by a certain age. When do you prevent it? What do you do? You know what I mean? Like, how do you? Because here's the thing here's what I always think, and this is what I tell a lot of my clients like, sex isn't dinner talk, you know, like this isn't what we sit around and talk about at the dinner table, and you know, we have this stigma attached to it. So how do you prevent it if society says this isn't something for you to really talk about it and then really no parent wants to talk to a four, five-year-old, six-year-old, you know, and then as we're getting six and seven, we're just closer to closer to our personalities being developed. And at that point, when is there no turning back, so to speak, or going back? I mean, if you're born with it and
3: you don't have any sexual abuse or anything happen to you, you make sex dinner talk. That's how you prevent it, in my opinion.
2: Yes, there is um, quantitative uh, EEG studies um, on pedophilia and sex offenders showing significant altercations, specifically over the left hemisphere and regions. So there's, there's research data on that. Does it say anything
3: about fixated pedophiles, you know, the... Ones that are, or does it just lump them all in the hole? There uh, is multiple studies. So
2: I'm wondering if you could filter out just on that. Yeah. How do we prevent? Well, okay. Wait a minute. Raise a hand
1: if you've ever had a parent ask you, is my child going to grow up and,
2: and be a sex offender?" is everyone talk to enough parents yet? <laughs> everyone who sexually every kid that's sexually abused become a sex offender? No, but
1: that is a fear, right? There Absolutely. is this there is this undercurrent fear of oh my gosh, now that my child has been hurt, you know their boundaries have been violated, pushed. How do I
2: know that they're not going to do that to someone else? I've also heard. Of- the mother who gets impregnated by her rapist and then has the baby and um and it's a male and there's is he gonna be a
4: rapist like his dad? Yep. I will also say in those situations where I have been asked, I feel like a lot of the times it is the perpetrator, the adult perpetrator who has had two children do things together, and maybe there is an age gap between them, and then people look at the one that's the oldest, and were they a perpetrator too? Because they went along with this, so there was that question of: Is this child now a perpetrator because he was doing these things to the younger one?
1: Oh yeah, and that's a fear. I mean, I've even had I've
2: had a kid ask me before: Does this mean I'm going to
1: hurt somebody else?
2: You know. And what a great talking point. Like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your feelings. Let's talk about, because that's how you discuss empathy. How did it make you feel? How do you think it would make others feel? Is this a worry or is it something that you're fantasizing about? Let's talk about it. Like Crystal said, like, let's make this dinner talk. There's no judgment. Exploration. Let's talk about it.
3: Yeah. I mean, you leave girls... I mean, boys' parts are on the outside, so they could figure it, they figure it out at some point. But even for girls and learning about masturbation and learning how to please themselves and not dependent upon another partner, because our bodies are so different, um, that's not happening, and you're left out there to just figure it out on your own. And that's an awkward conversation to have.
2: But wouldn't you like?
4: glitchy glitch information said learn it on your own and maybe not have it because parents, like, like i'm of course this is so being talked about right now i'm thinking of jeffrey you know like because it was so addressed and talked about like the parents knew he didn't really have a lot of empathy so what do you do as a parent when you recognize your child doesn't have empathy but you don't realize that it can go the lack of empathy can then go to this type of behavior, whether it be a perpetrator or you know a person who commits these crimes and you just think like, oh, my child is closed off, like, and they miss the boat on trying to teach empathy at that age because they don't recognize the correlation of no, this this could lead to greater things. It's not just the child who doesn't like to discuss feelings.
2: I mean, you can learn empathy. It's a taught, you can absolutely learn empathy. Um, However, we're talking about the brain and what if it is an organic, an organic thing that this particular person isn't, it's not accessible.
0: So a lot of the materials that like I read while I was being trained into this position, obviously I'm not an expert, but it's always children who offend on other children won't necessarily grow up to be adult offenders, but is that because they were caught and taught empathy and then went through treatment and that their brain is still in that pattern that they could offend in adulthood? Or were they just curious because they didn't understand and they were exposed to something? Like what makes that child perpetrator a continued perpetrator versus a unknowing
4: exposed to the wrong things sometimes I think it is empathy I think you can you honestly like I mean there are kids who are like I feel so bad I was exploring I was and then you have the other kids who are just like I think there's a big piece to that Mm -hmm. I knew
2: it felt, I didn't, I didn't know it wasn't wrong until I was taught it was wrong. And then when I was educated about it, then, um, I thought I had to do it. I felt shame or embarrassment
4: or.
0: So with working with offenders, cause you both were like, y'all worked with offenders. Did you work with youth offenders too? And like, could you notice that shit? Like shift, were they not recommended for treatment if they
2: showed empathy? Or? Do I feel like there were definitely more kids than not when working with them where you thought, oh shit, the work's being done and they'll hit the radar when they're 18 and then they offend.
4: Unfortunately. And then uh, the- I, had I hate I to didn't. say that. I didn't want to say it, but I mean we can be a lot of them high high chance of reoffending did you ever have any that just had such a low iq
3: um and then it's like wow and they're like oh uh, uh okay i mean there i've had i've had a couple of those
2: you mean um, they're concrete like, level and when you you say no then they understand and then they don't do it anymore yeah yeah, yeah. um
4: Yes. Or rechanneling yes. the
2: sexual energy into a different capacity, a safe, yeah. healthy way. Uh, Shelby, I think it also matters, too, when, when I think about the kids that you worked with, what home they were going to. What's the support system like? We've talked about it before. Opportunities. Um, are they going to continue outpatient therapy? Those thoughts aren't going to stop.
4: So, And they- then you think, you think like a kid, a kid lies to get out of trouble. You know, like we don't want to get into trouble. So we we usually tell lies to get out of trouble. So you think about a kid who's already been caught, been sent off to treatment for a year, um, and then they go back home and these thoughts start coming in their head. Why would they tell? And I got t- I just got sent off for a year. I just got all this stuff and I was supposed to, you know, be cured because I got sent off and went to this treatment. Why would I tell if these intrusive thoughts are popping in my head again?
2: And now I'm a failure. We encourage encourage them to talk about the interests of thoughts. We encourage them to label them, talk about them. Who's your safe space? You know, I didn't work on the, I was not a therapist when I worked with offenders um, like Tara and Crystal were. I was a a youth care worker. Uh, But still working, I was getting my master's. So those thoughts are popping in my head. I'm watching, I'm sitting in group. I'm noticing these things. I'm reading the materials that they're working with. But I do want to just put that on the record. Like I haven't done therapy with a juvenile who's had sex offenses.
0: So what I'm hearing from everyone throughout the course of this conversation is it's really a inherent, this is a nature, this is not a nature thing. It's not a nurture partially a nurture thing, I, but it's I mostly it's just cold. ingrained in your bed. It's it's a little, little bit of both, but I'm...
2: There's no black and there, white, white
0: there. Right.
2: That Shelby, so I love some of the questions you're you're asking, and there's so many variables with so many of them that you can't give a specific... Every, every so one is
3: different. Yeah. Everyone, every single one. Um And... Going back to the parent stuff where we were saying, who do they go home to? You're gonna send them home with parents who still don't want to talk about sex, are still pissed that they did what they did, or still, you know, think shaming and guilting is the best parenting way. You're gonna make a super sex offender.
4: And some people think like <laughs> because... oh, I went to treatment, I'm cured. I mean, think about substance abuse. I went to rehab. Oh, I did my my say at rehab and it's all it's people don't see it as ongoing. A lot of the times, that's where the ball is dropped. They don't see it as ongoing. Like, this is an ongoing thing you have to stick with and continue to constantly practice. Like, I have kids who have perpetrator issues, but it's constant, like, oh, come here, give me a hug. Come here, give me this, you know. And the people they encounter in the community who do that, who have no idea. And it's a constant. It's never ongoing. It's like, oh, they're in therapy, they went to treatment, and then there's no ongoing follow-up. And I'll go. I mean, the Could you imagine as a parent, your kid coming home from this type of treatment, and then you're having to go around and educate teachers and, like, caretakers and their um, friends' parents if, and friends? Um, if my kid does this and you, they need to ask permission before they give a hug or they need to set. You know, that's far away from somebody like you would constantly be educating somebody and think of the stigma.
3: Yeah. But the first step is we should all be teaching our kids to do all of that. Yes. It, their yes. body's their body. And we wouldn't have to worry about that if parents taught their kids these things. Um, I think something
1: yeah. important to also add to this, if we're talking about raising sexual offenders and you all mentioned a couple of times of when they come back home. Right. From treatment. So what kind of message does that send to the victim slash survivor when the person who hurt them is now allowed back in the home?
3: Uh, when the parents are dying for them to get home.
2: You mean like if it's a sibling or someone that lives in the home with them? Oh, girl. It's a whole different podcast. Yeah. It is, but I just wanted
1: just
3: to give that yeah. recognition. Especially when they feel pressured to say, I'm okay with them coming home. Yeah, it happens a lot, and yeah. a lot of the the
4: perp, the victim is not going to go against the parents if the parents want the kid to come home. Well, then also the victim is dealing with their own grief because they did love and care about this person. So there is a part of them that wants them to come home, home, but they think they're coming home healthy, and this is never going to happen to me again. Right. That's what they've been told. They're they're gone. They're getting help. Oh
0: no! So like, what are the what are the this- And I know no one knows the statistics off the top of their head, but like how often have you seen that the perpetrator was removed from the home, got the treatment, they had the safety plan in place, and then the poor survivor gets perked on again thinking that it was going to be okay. Like, I mean, we put all these measures in place to help these kids to make sure it doesn't happen. I mean, does it happen a lot? That's the
2: part, too, where you don't say that they're coming home and this is never going to happen. They're coming home and we're going to follow safety and protocol. And I love both of you and I want you to be safe. And if this person, your brother or sister comes in your room, they're not supposed to, or they break a rule. This unconditional love of it's okay to tell me because I need to know. And it's okay. Cause we need to work this through as a family. And and it's not one person's fault. If you know, so it's, it's all of these conversations.
4: And I I think, and I don't know what you guys think, a part of me believes they just found another victim. They may
2: not go back to anymore. that
4: same victim because they've been caught. Yeah. They just kind oh, of move on to another victim. Or it's not sexual abuse anymore. It's
3: physical and emotional abuse. They might not be in sexual abuse in their sibling anymore, but they are still abusing them right. in other ways. And not only that, but
1: our justice system says we can't prosecute somebody under a certain age. Or, our justice system says we can't prosecute somebody who has an IQ below blank. Well, then what message does that send?
2: You know, Uh, it goes back to um, what Tara and I's mentor told us years ago. You take a therapist and they move in with the family for six months and they model behaviors and they do family therapy and they do individual therapy and the therapist is there living with them six months out of the year and you teach them all these things and you leave and we know that that's never going to happen but she reminds me that. of the show what was um, the
4: nanny show where she would yes go the nanny. Nanny number one. Mm-hmm.
2: yes her name was joe she
1: was from the uk yeah
3: yeah because if a family's dysfunctional they're not letting you know on the let. You on know, let their you in on their dysfunction if they're trying to get their child home Especially if it's financial reasons, this child gets a disability check. This child supports us in our home,
4: and I think the level. I think people need to understand when you say like dysfunction, like the level of dysfunction. Sometimes it's not. Com- sometimes it's stuff that happens in any household. It doesn't have to be like, oh, there's substance abuse, there's physical abuse, there's, it could be the trauma of a divorce, the trauma of a move, trauma of a, you know, like, yes, it doesn't have to be like this huge dysfunction where I think people's mindset is like, oh, it's this dirty household where kids aren't taken care of and, you know, nobody works or there's substance abuse. And I've worked with so many families who were upper middle class and this was occurring in their home and it, it it could be everyday dysfunction. It doesn't have to be like the massive, yeah. you know, that people think of
3: emotional intelligence is a big,
4: Oh, I have thing. like very intelligent people and they just happen to marry somebody because that person was that good at grooming and they brought a perpetrator in their home and they're like, Oh my gosh, why didn't I see this? You know, like I've I've never in my life. So it could be also it's not a dysfunctional home, but that you brought roomed and you thought they were amazing.
2: And let's remind ourselves we're talking about children. We're talking about individuals under the age of eighteen whose brains are not even fully developed and won't be until they're in their twenties.
3: Yeah. And there are people who are attracted to children. And they don't like being attracted to children, Um, and they have nowhere to go. So, yeah, there's
2: a lot of things that needs to be changed to change this. Did we hit up in the last? um, Do we know the rates of sexual per other countries? Oh, that's a
1: good question. I was wondering how that was like in Europe where things are way more expressed and talked about and accepted and there is not like body shame. It is your body is beautiful. Our bodies are meant to be pleasured, whether that's through food, touch, emotion. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I, I don't know, but I like that
3: and i'm pretty sure we have more steward killers than most other countries i don't
2: there is statistics <laughs> um, but i've had um, I've, I've had some interaction with individuals in terms of discussions about what's culturally appropriate in europe uh, and yes, owning the body is great and non-sexualizing. I'm still uncertain if families need to just constantly walk around nude. You know, if you did, there would have to be some really good rules on where where can we do that, where can we not? How do we? Are we touching? Are we not touching? Um, are things viewed as the body is the body, or is there a, If if you're walking around nude, but there are also a lot of sexualization and free will and encouragement to be sexually expressive? How do we make sure that it's healthy? So there's well, so many questions
0: yeah, I love and so
2: statistics good. in Europe.
0: Well, it's also important to remember that Europe is made up by a lot of different countries with a lot of different cultures. You know, Western and Eastern Europe are very different as well. And where where's the stereotype of the nude walking around at? Like, is that supposed to be France or wh- which country is that? Because I haven't heard that one. I've heard like that in the United States with like very hippie type back in like the commune type era that, but I haven't heard of that like for a specific country that that's a stereotype. Okay. The
2: idea. question would be, When I took this, these like three or four interactions and calls that I don't recall. I just remember it was from Europe. So me talking about when they are normalizing that that's what happens. So that being, is that the subculture that they live in? Is it they, their family? Is it? It's definitely an interesting question. I was just wondering if like you knew specifically where that was the stereotype.
1: But if we, I tell you this though, this is uh, in history, you know, hundreds of years ago, because I don't know the exact dates of the Roman Empire. I really don't, but I, it's safe to say hundreds of years ago, right? When the Romans were like at the creme de la creme, you know, there was very much uh, within that culture one of bathhouses, one of communal, all kinds of stuff. And you know, so that is true. But now I didn't live back then. Obviously, I'm in. Mean, I was born in 1975. But you know, I do know that from what I remember studying about the Roman Empire, and especially in art appreciation history class and things. You know, you see that. So that was very much an open expression of culture. Now, I don't know
2: because we need a fact checker. It. I'm looking at World Atlas. For this
3: podcast. I'm looking at World Atlas.com, which I'm assuming that's it's like at the top of my search and it's World Atlas. That's people used to make maps, right? Should sure, of goodness, sir. Uh, number one country casero killers is the United States at three oh, thousand four. Number two is England at 166. 3204 compared to 166 between one and two. Top one and two. So maybe they're better at getting away with it. That could be it
2: in other countries. That's scary.
1: Well, I think what is scary is, especially for serial killers, I think too, that is a lot, just my own personal opinion, a lot of the environment and the lack of that is missing from somebody's life. I really do.
3: I think it's great too. Now, you've watched the the documentary on HBO, didn't you, um, Jennifer, about... The brain scans and uh, crazy, not insane.
1: Oh, yeah, I did. Yes.
3: Oh, I don't remember. It's been a long not. time. But I, yeah. It was a lot about dissociation and DID and serial killers. And um, it was a lady scanning brains. And oh, it was so interesting. Um, and they proposed that a lot of these serial killers have DID um, and that that's a part that kills people.
0: Did they yeah. mention anything about lead poisoning? Because like the reason we had such a huge spike in serial killers back in like the 60s, 70s era is because the lead and oh, gas man, and that would, lead it, paint and lead causes aggression.
3: I don't know if it said it on that show, but I've heard that before. Yeah. I've also heard fetal alcohol syndrome for people like Columbus, why he was so savage. Um, but who knows?
1: That is, you know, that it's really interesting because in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's shot out of my brain at this moment, but there's an entire section of the city that has been um, poisoned by lead. So much so that anybody that lives in that zip code in that area, they have like free education, free all kinds of things because of the consistent and uh, continual to this day still lead poisoning from pipes, from paint, from dirt in the air. Um, And I will never forget that I was doing a nursing clinical rotation at one of the elementary schools in that area of Louisville. And it was a kindergarten class. It was May. So, you know, school's getting ready to end, right? And in the nursing clinical, we had to do Educating on healthy eating from my plate, which is bogus, but anyway, that was you know 12 years ago. Um, And so, kindergarten class getting ready to go into first grade, I was like, okay, who can name a fruit that is like red? And they couldn't answer that question. Um, Who could name a vegetable that's yellow? And it was very quizzical, like it was to me at a kindergarten level appropriate to say apple or corn, you know, one kid said a banana for a vegetable. And so I kind of removed myself and had one of my classmates take over. And I went to the teacher and I said, I am so sorry. I said, we were not given instructions that this was like a special needs classroom. Right. And she looked at me, she goes, this is a regular kindergarten class. And I said, okay. And she goes, oh, you don't know too much about the history of this neighborhood, do you? And I said, no, nope, don't live here, you know, in this neighborhood. And that's when she educated me about the lead poisoning and that these children have significant uh, learning disabilities, um, neurological, dis- all kinds of stuff. So to your question, it would be interesting if anybody went to neighborhoods And followed over the course of 20, 30 years to see what kinds of mental health or psychological issues came from that. Because it's not just the children, but it's also the parents who are also being poisoned at the same time.
3: That's what you know. Just by happenstance, you went to the school. Who knows how many other communities there are like that across America?
2: But it's definitely interesting. It's looking at the environmental factors
0: from a micro, meso, and macro level. That's my social work words right
2: there. Right. That's right. That's first year social work right there, girl.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's also, I think, coming to the conclusion of, I think in in our world, we want to make it very simple. We want to make it black and white. You know, if you have A, B, C, D, E, F, G then I know that you're going to be X, Y, Z, right? But that's not, that's not the way it works. Because we also have people who come from horrendous traumatic backgrounds that grow up to be the most compassionate kind of loving people. So then that kind of gets me wondering At what pivotal moments was there a consistent, kind, loving, compassionate caregiver? Or a safe, trusted adult, right?
3: Yeah. And I think that's a key. Yeah. And the information that we've been taught in the past about parenting, some of it is incorrect. Um, Crying it out. Uh, Everything I've read about that is incorrect now. And... How many kids were damaged from that? I don't know. Um, oh,
1: yeah. We don't know what we don't know until we know something different. I was just having that conversation today with a client in in just regards to understanding about the nervous system and polyvagal theory. You know, you all know I love that. I didn't even know polyvagal theory existed until three years ago. It's been around since the 90s. I had no clue. So I didn't know what I didn't know until i know.
4: That's what I tell parents whose kids have been sexually abused because they're like, "How did I know?" You only know with the present information that you saw in front of you. It wasn't happening right in front of you. You only know with what presently was being presented. Yeah.
1: And if a kid has been threatened, if they have had their animal threatened, their family members threatened, then that's a survival. It's like I don't, I don't want my dog to be killed or my cat or my pet skunk, or my parrot, or I don't want anything to happen to my mom, or my dad, or my little sister, or brother, or, you know, so kids don't speak up for lots of reasons.
3: So how do we expect perpetrators, or sex, not perpetrators, children who sexually act out to tell?
2: I I
1: I think it's one of those things that probably gets caught more than
4: than not, you know, like, an adult seeing, hearing, or, yeah. Yeah. And I wish, I bet you there have been cases where maybe a juvenile has went to somebody they trusted and talked about those things, but like I said, then they're not going around talking about it, so it would be very interesting if somebody, you know, to hear a, a story like that, to hear how that process went and what made that person comfortable in sharing.
1: Well, yeah, because if you share that kind of information, that's opening up a Pandora's box because then there's always, you know, the duty to, to warn, duty to tell, duty.
2: Yeah. I lots of questions upon questions This leads us to other questions. really does my my brain my brain's a turning um
0: I do have a lot more questions but I think I want to ask if anyone has anything that would be good to wrap up like any final thoughts anything that you want the world to know about raising children in our world today and helping them not become sexual offenders and or speak out if they see something or something happens to them
3: i I feel like if at all possible if you're planning to have a kid or you have or you're now pregnant um either way planning or not as soon as you become pregnant if you haven't been to therapy if you haven't worked on your stuff that you've been that you need to heal a kid is going to trigger every bit of that and sometimes that means that the child you're putting your emotions on the child and the child's emotions get ignored so definitely therapy for the parent because you're at that point when you have a kid your feelings are no longer the most important your kids are and you've got to figure that out um that's my input on that one
2: Making sure that there's dialogue about appropriate sexual education, your body, uh, supervision of time with your children, being informed of what's going on at other places, um, asking questions. So... We have a right to know, you know, is there an adult going to be there? Do you you allow your kids to do X, Y, Z? It's not like my parenting is more superior than someone else's. These are questions I want to know so that I can help decide if it's okay if my kiddo goes over there or maybe I need to go over um, some safety precautions with them. So, and then when we talk about electronics, (laughs) making sure that there's parent controls um knowing more than your child just is going to be an ongoing battle for individuals cuz kids will inherently seem to always know more about us as uh, I get older I'll just speak for myself um and knowing how can you monitor or making sure that they're watching appropriate things for their brain development and then once again even though we've said it 20 million times open discussions about sexual education Open dialogues about who you can go to well you don't have you don't have to engage in conversation with me but I'm gonna ask you to listen or even act like you're listening because then you're gonna absorb it uh, the things that I'm saying if you don't feel safe asking me questions let's find somebody you do feel safe with let's find somebody that you can't ask those questions with
4: I'm cool Yeah. And I would say as a parent, learning how to control your emotional reaction, which can be hard because that's your child and you have an emotional connection and you go into like full blown parent mode. And I'm a parent. I've done that where my kid has came to me and I've had to like stone face, like have this conversation and then later either call somebody or like go somewhere and be like, what the fuck just happened? Like I, I had to shut that emotion off as they're asking and inquiring and then answer and then later be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just had to have that conversation. Like, cause it's hard, it's hard. But if you have a response in that moment and that's what I tell myself, if I have like this huge emotional response, they're not coming back. They're not coming back.
2: They're going to find out information for somewhere else that may not be fully informed and correct.
4: Yes. They are going back somewhere else. Mm-hmm.
1: I like all of that. And I, what I'm about ready to say is coming from a person who does not have children. Okay. So understand I own that, but I think taking away these things, computers, tablets, things getting put up at five, six o'clock in the evening, passwords being controlled by adults in the home, not by kids knowing passwords. Um. I think that makes a huge difference. And I think encouraging creativity, encouraging connection, getting out into nature, going to the playground, swinging, planting, gardening, learning, going to the zoo, doing all those kinds of things that require a lot of, I'll be honest, energy. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of being present-minded instead of disassociating. This is disassociation. I think that makes a huge difference because when you build that connection, when you build that trust, you build safety. So that over opens up the opportunities for conversations that are really hard to have. But I don't have children. That's just.
3: that's That's a healed parent doing those things. I will say that.
2: For sure. I don't have kids either, but
0: all these conversations just stress me out make me think I'm not, you know, I don't want them. (laughs) That emotional, like Tara, I've never even thought about how your emotional reactions would make your kids shut down. Like you can't be emotional. You get, ah, that's too much, man. I need more therapy before I'm ready for that. (laughs) Look at that. Beautiful. That's a
1: recognition, right? I mean you're already if, a good parent. Yeah, you're you're <laughs> a best chicken mama ever. Thank you. <laughs> but if we also applied that, but just not about children. But what if we applied that thought about
2: before we get into romantic relationships? Right? Like, whoa. Yeah. Just a thought that's probably yeah that comes first for sure. Yeah. Wow. Great conversation ladies. Really good. Yeah, self love and healing. It's important. Thank you guys
0: so much for coming out and talking to us for part 2. I think we got a little deeper this time and spread a lot of knowledge. I I definitely learned a lot and I know I have more questions uh so many questions this could go on for five hours but i'm glad to be here doing the work and keep learning and i hope everyone in podcast land continues listening to learn more that's right
1: we want to say thank you for all of our listeners out there whether you're in wisconsin india thailand or ireland thanks for tuning in and you can change the world tomorrow just by listening today Thanks for tuning in. Hi. Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Roddy Newton, our technical advisor. See See you next
0: time. time. This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020, Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.